And I invite you to turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 10. And uh, I know some of you have been reading this in advance, and you think, what on earth are we going to say about Genesis chapter 10? (laughs) And if you haven't read it, you're in for a treat. (laughs) Genesis chapter 10, and uh, as you'll see, it's it's a genealogy. Uh, some 70 names are mentioned. Uh, so let's, uh, but it's scripture, so let's read it. And I'll do my best to pronounce all the names and uh, see how we go. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, uh, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim. And from these the coastline people spread in their lands, each with its own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, and the, the land of Shinar. And from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kazluhim, and from whom the Philistines come, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites and the Amorites and Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zermanites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, Zebu, and Zeboim as far as Lashar. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and languages, their lands and their nations. To Shem also the father of the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpaxad, Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether and Mash, Arpaxad fathered Shelah and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. By the, na- uh, the name of one was Peleg, for in the days of the earth, the earth was divided, and the brother's name, that his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Jara, Hadaram, Utsal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ofer, Havilah, and Johab, Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad 
on the earth after the flood. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your words, we thank you for it. Uh, Though some parts of it are difficult to understand, uh, we pray you'd help us this morning with this chapter and uh, help us to draw from it uh, teaching that is helpful and relevant to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you should have your Bible open, and I hope you do. Um, Even in a passage like this, it's important to have our Bibles open. A person that that doesn't have their Bible open uh, in a sermon, I think, is someone who has a weak desire to hear what God has to say to them. Can I be that blunt? You need to have your Bibles open. Having your Bible open tethers you and anchors you to Jesus Christ. Well, we just read uh, a genealogy of the sons of Noah. In July, we were studying the story of Noah and the flood. And uh, one verse that came to my mind as I was thinking and preparing for this was uh, the words of Paul, the Apostle Paul in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 22, says this, Note, and after he's been explaining the gospel after many chapters, before he gets to the practical parts in Romans chapter 12, uh, Paul says this, Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. The kindness and severity of God. That's what we've seen in the story of Noah and the flood. We've seen the severity of God as he came in judgment, as he promised. Because the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Chapter 6, verse 5. And that severity of God and the judgment of God is a warning for all who take for granted God's patience with ongoing sins that remain unpunished until they die. But it also shows us the kindness of God. Because God called Noah and his family to build an ark the size of a a huge football pitch. I said before, it's a bit bigger than the pitch at Wembley. This huge boat, this huge ark, into which his family and all the animals could go into and be saved. Because the floods were going to come and cover the whole earth. So when Abraham looks out over at the edge of the boat and looks out, all he can see is horizon. He can't see any hills, trees, anything. All he could see was horizon for a time. And for a whole year he floated around with his family and all the animals on this boat. Until... The land eventually, the waters abated, disappeared, the land dried. And God in his kindness had saved Noah and his family. And it's not because Noah deserved it. He was just like everyone else. But God in his sovereign grace came and saved Noah and his family. And so Noah was able to, to walk out of this ark. So the door was opened for him. And he stepped out with his family into almost a new world. An empty world. And begin to live again. 
And so that story in 6 through to 9 concludes with this genealogy in chapter 10. And it's the account of uh, the three sons, um, uh, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Or Shem Ham is Jeffrey, as we were talking about this morning <laughs> with some of the children. Not Jeffrey, no, Japheth. And the chapter divides into three parts. Uh, so verses 2 to 5, uh, we get the genealogy of Japheth. And then in verses 6 to 20, the genealogy of Ham. And then 21 to 31, the genealogy of Shem. And at first sight, you know, it doesn't look very interesting, does it? You're probably wondering, what earth is he going to say? He's going to ramble on for, an hour, for half an hour about nothing in particular. And it's mostly a list of some 70 people or peoples or cities. But there's a couple of points that I will come back to, which is, you'll notice that Nimrod gets a mention of five whole verses in this. He, uh, so what's the significance of Nimrod in this? We'll come to that. And then in verse 21, uh, Moses picks out Eber as one of the descendants of Shem. And we'll come to the significance of Eber in the, uh, the fullness of t- in, in later on. But the purpose of this, of course, is, is to demonstrate something quite significant, which comes at the end of verse 30, it comes at 32. These nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is all about the nations and how Noah's family spread across all the earth. Um, now, you don't, we don't want to get too bogged down in, in all the details. Um, you could draw a chart like this one. I did, <laughs> of who's, who's related to who and, and all the rest of it. And that's fascinating, but a bit nerdy. But we're not really supposed to spend our time doing that. We're not supposed to worry too much about genealogies. But we are to, to think, what's the lesson? What's the big picture here? And that's what I want to get to. You will notice, just pick out a few things that are uh, of interest, I think. You'll notice that it covers a great many uh, names. And those names, uh, scholars have worked very hard to try and relate them to different people groups across the earth. Uh, just a couple of examples. Uh, the, uh, in, verse, in verse 2, uh, the son of Japheth is Madai. Well, scholars think that he's related to the Medes, who were closely connected with the Persians in the east. Or Javan related perhaps to the Ionian Greeks in the West. Uh, you know, now so scholars have gone through all of these and uh, tried to place all these. Uh, and you can see that the focus moves also to, to Africa. Uh, the sons of Ham are Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan. So Cush is northeast Africa, what we'd call Ethiopia or Eritrea or that, that sort of region, the northeast corner. Egypt which you know well, and, uh, and other places like the Kaftarim in verse 14, uh, the people of Cyprus from Kaftor, and so on. You could go through all of these names and work out all kinds of interesting things about them, but they're really, uh, we're, we're not just to hone our gene- gene- genealog- genealogical skills in doing this. Uh, Paul tells Timothy, uh, Titus rather, Titus 3.9 Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless 
So we need to look at this in a way that's profitable, not unprofitable. So what are we to learn from it? So I've got three lessons that I think we should learn uh, from this passage. Three points of connection, uh, both with what's gone before and what's gone after. And the message is this, that God is at work, man is still sinful, but God is still full of grace. Where does he get that from? Well, we'll see. (laughs) God is still at work, man is still sinful, but God is still full of grace. So here's the first thing. And here's the lesson for us. Believe God to be at work, even when he seems absent. Number one, believe God to be at work, even when he seems to be absent. Now you may think that's that's a kind of general heading, uh, too general to fit the text. But I hope you'll see what I'm getting at here. Uh, Back in chapter 9, verse 1, uh, Noah tells, uh, Moses tells us, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And this chapter demonstrates the fulfillment of that blessing on mankind, on Noah's family and all of mankind. Because in relatively short order, The survivors of the flood multiplied and their descendants spread across the earth. And that reminds us three things about our God. We're still under the first heading. Three things that it reminds us about our God. Notice the power and remember the power of God to bring about all that he has planned in creation. In the early chapters of this, this book of Genesis, we saw the unlimited power of God to create the universe and to fill it and populate it with people and animals and creatures. But there is a conception around about God that's been around for centuries and sometimes can come into the church and maybe has come into your heart today that says this, that God has simply set things up But now he's not that interested anymore. He's, as it were, he has stood back and he just lets it run. Rather like they used to say, you know, you wind up a clock and let it tick down. That's what they used to say in the 17th century. The deists would say, God has created the universe. Yes, but he's gone off to do something else. And meanwhile, the universe just runs along in its own energy, slowly running down. But that's not what the Bible says about how God is active in the universe. Uh, Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In other words, he carries it. That word uphold, he carries it. He bears it. It's like he is active in sustaining it. It's not just that he made it and let it run. But he is continually active in sustaining it. And you just think about that for a second. Everything holds together. Even as you sit on the ground under the influence of gravity. That's because God lets the law of gravity work. The law of gravity describes how God is at work. The laws of physics 
work because they describe the way that God is continually at work. The laws of physics don't exist independently of God. God is continually at work. He lets you stick to the ground rather than float off into the sky. He lets you breathe. He lets your heart keep burning, keep beating. He keeps all the molecules in your body still together. All the nuclear and, and atomic interactions, all of that, all of that works because God continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power. Mathematics works because they describe, which we use to describe the world, it works. It makes predictions. We're able to make predictions and develop technologies through mathematics and all the sciences because God upholds the universe the way he does. And so the point I'm making here is that when it comes down to the history of human beings who are part of this creation, it is God alone who makes things happen, including the generation of human beings from generation to generation. And yes, of course, there are, there are scientific ways of describing everything. And I've, at one time in my life I've been a scientist, a professional research scientist. You can have scientific explanations and seek scientific explanations for all things. But under it all is the God who upholds everything. Because our science simply describes how God does that. That's true of you and me today as we sit here today. God is at work in your life, my life, in the life of your family. And perhaps he is at work in ways that are mysterious to you. And you will face joys in life. And you will face tragedies in life. Ups and downs. Laughter and tears. But in the midst of it all, God is at work in your life. The power of God at work in our lives. The second thing, still under the first heading, first main heading, the goodness of God. Think of the goodness of God. Remember, God blessed Noah he blessed all of his children, Ham, Sham, and Japheth. And remember, all the known world comes from his family. And it doesn't matter if they turned out to be good or evil or something in between. God blessed them. Now, this is an idea that we have come across before. It's the idea of God's common grace. Like, Theologians have wrestled with this idea down the centuries, but it's the idea of God's common grace. You see, at one level, God is gracious to all men and women everywhere. You remember when Jesus told his disciples to, to love your enemies and to pray for them in Matthew chapter 5? The reason he gives for that is, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God doesn't just bless his own people. He blesses all people. And so we can enjoy the fresh air of this earth. We can enjoy its sights and sounds. Its tastes and experiences. And we can work with it to produce and make things. And find fulfillment and pleasure in all of that. And people can have families and enjoy their children. And someone can do all of that without knowing God. 
Because God blesses all of humanity. And God is patient with the sins of men and women and boys and girls. See, you keep thinking about this, the instant that we sin once, we become guilty in the eyes of God. And He would be within His rights to take our lives at that very instant. But He doesn't. He is patient with every single human being. He gives opportunity for men and women, boys and girls, to come to Him in repentance and faith and turn to Him and receive grace and mercy. He is patient. But today we mustn't mistake all these common grace blessings for His approval of our lives. He is good. But let me ask you this morning, are you taking all of this for granted this morning? That He is good? Are you looking beyond the blessing to see the giver of the blessings that you enjoy? To look to God and turning to Him. God is good. And He continues to be good to you while you have breath in your body. The third thing we say under the first heading still, look at the purpose of God. The purposes of God. This apparently dry genealogy shows us that God is at work to bring about the fulfillment of His promises down through the generations. And it reminds us that what we need is not just common grace, but saving grace. Saving grace. In other words, this common grace and this genealogy is laying the groundwork for a way of salvation that, can, that God continues to work out. And we'll say more about this in a minute. But I simply need to ask at this point, do you know God's saving grace in your life? We all benefit from His common grace. But do we know His saving grace? Well, you may be blessed in so many ways materially and relationally in this life. But you need His saving grace in your life. And one day all of that will, all that common grace will go. Are you ready for that? See, for that you need saving grace. We'll come back to that in a moment. But let me move on to the main, second main point. And it's this. Beware of the dangers of the human heart. Beware of the dangers of your human heart. I mentioned earlier that uh, Nimrod gets uh, a big mention in verses 8 to 25. And sometimes you see this in genealogies, that it's almost like a, a dry list is, is, is interrupted by a bit of biographical detail. And Nimrod gets these five verses. What do we know about Nimrod? Well, it's, it's verse 8 tells us that he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. A mighty man! And what does he mean by a mighty man? Well, the suggestion is that up to this point, everyone was pretty much the same. Everyone was on a level. Uh, There's no suggestion of the existence of government as such, no kings. Everybody just went about their business living and making a living on the earth. 
There was no structure. But you know what it's like in, in any group of people who, who end up living and working together. Some of them begin to emerge as leaders. Uh, someone f- to whom others look for direction. And Nimrod is one of those, those men. And verse 9 goes on to say that he was a, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And so much so that, in fact, his reputation went before him, and that became a yardstick by which other people were measured. To be like Nimrod, a a mighty hunter before the Lord, was a kind of measure for other people. Now, a quick read of this might make us think that he was, you know, he's quite good at catching rabbits or something. (laughs) You know, he's a good hunter. You know, he could fire his arrows at rabbits and whatever. What do I know about hunting? I don't know, I think. But, but there is a sense in which, if you read on, what's been described here is far, far bigger than simply hunting rabbits. And when the, the word says that he, he was a hunter, he's hunting cities. He's hunting peoples. And so he is in the business of extending his influence among other peoples and nations. Nimrod is a man who is interested in seizing wealth and power to himself. This is what happens amongst men and women when they begin to work together. This is what begins to emerge now again from the, the wreckage of the floods. Even in the midst of the common grace of God, you have somebody who rises up, who wants to seize power and influence and wealth. And there's just a reminder here that all of that is done before the face of the Lord. The Lord knows. And he sees it all. But Nimrod is not a good man. And friends, this, this is what happens in a society where sin is present in the hearts of men and women. Where the grace of God, the saving grace of God, indeed the common grace of God, is rejected. You think about it. In the civil sphere, think about our own society. In the civil sphere, in political power. Ask any politician today, or anywhere in the world for that matter, uh, when they, hold, when they get to the office that they hold, why they're there and what they want from it, they'll say, well, I just want to serve the people. <laughs> I am a servant of the people. And I think there's enough suspicion, maybe cynicism in some of us to think, I'm sure that's not the real reason or the only reason. Because we know the human heart, don't we? We know that men and women often emerge who are greedy for power and wealth and a desire to dominate others. That's why governments need systems of checks and balances to restrain evil power. Why it's a dangerous thing when power is vested in one person. As we often see in places across the world, we always have to be vigilant as citizens against that sort of thing. But we see it in family sphere as well. Parents, usually the father, 
can dominate and even abuse his children and his wife. Because he thinks no one's looking. He takes what he pleases. The rest of the family suffers. That's why we need legal systems in place. And places of refuge for abused family members, wives and children. You see, these things can rise up in the, in the family and nobody knows about it. It can happen in the church sphere. I've lost count of the number of so-called evangelical church leaders over the last ten years who have had to be removed from office because of abusive leadership styles, because of sexual abuse of children, of being unfaithful to their wives and abusing the relationships they have in church. And churches we see in and organizations often in bewilderment trying to cover up the embarrassment of all of that because they've let it happen. And all of it because the sins of the human heart have gone unchecked. And here's the thing about all of that. All of these so-called Christian leaders, many of whom, of whom, to whom many people would have looked up to, how many people do you know who have an internet ministry and people are constantly referring to this great preacher and that great preacher and that great leader and this great leader? And the thing is that in some of those cases, these are men who preach the gospel but either they didn't believe it or they did not believe what the Bible said about themselves and the sinfulness of their own hearts that they thought they were inviolable that they didn't sin very much that their hearts weren't full of pride and arrogance and that the gospel of grace that they preached was for other people but not for them And all the time allowing the the sins of their own hearts, the the pride of their hearts, the acquisitiveness of their hearts, the self-righteousness of their own hearts, grow and grow and grow. It can happen to you and me. They They were ordinary Christians at one time. And these are the sorts of things that can happen to you and to me. Friends, beware of the dangers of your human heart. Especially if you profess to be a Christian today. Oh, how we need the continuing grace of God in our lives. And thank God that grace can be found. Which brings us to the final point. Remember that God has opened up a way of salvation. In many ways, this chapter is leading us to a climax. It's kind of clearing the ground a little bit for the the genealogy of Shem, which begins in verse... uh, And Shem is mentioned in verse 21. But you'll notice that his sons are not mentioned until verse 22, because he has something important to say up front at the beginning, that Shem is the father of all the children of Eber. Uh, Now, who's Eber? You wonder... And if you look ahead to verse 24, you'll see that Eber is in the line of Shem. And some scholars think that Eber, the name Eber, is the root of the term Hebrew. 
all the children, the, the children of the Hebrews, the children of Eber. Maybe. It's a bit uncertain. But if you look ahead into chapter 11, you'll see that there's another gene- genealogy that, that leads from Shem to Eber to Abraham. Now, what Moses is doing here in chapter 10 is he's signaling the direction he wants to go in. From Shem to Eber to Abraham. And when we get to Abraham, we get to this wonderful section of promises in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Let me just read it to you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis chapter 12. One day we'll get to Genesis chapter 12. I'm not quite sure when. But it's a significant promise because God promises to Abraham blessing to the nations not just of common grace but of saving grace. The promises made to Abraham are an expansion and a development of the promise made in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15 about the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. And there will be a great nation gathered But not simply of those who are genetically descended from Abraham, but a royal nation brought to birth and life by God through Christ, the church of God. That's the nation. And through that church, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How? By the preaching of the gospel across the world. By the preaching of the gospel. And that's how men and women are going to be gathered into this nation. See, God is laying out for us His plans and purposes in His Son, Jesus Christ. God's purposes have never been limited to one family or to one tribe or to one nation, but rather God's saving grace is to be offered to the whole world by providing for us a seed, a saviour, the Son of God, who'd ultimately deal with the curse of the sin of our hearts and the death that besets us all. And he would do that on behalf of all his people. It's Jesus Christ that the world needs. And he is what you and I need to deal with our hidden sins. So may we trust in him today and thank God for all his goodness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness and goodness to us. Thank you for all the common grace things we enjoy. We thank you that there's so much of it. But we also thank you most of all for your saving grace in Jesus Christ. And thank you for the way in which your plans and purposes are being are laid out for us in the Bible. That they lead us to Christ. The Old Testament points to Christ. The Gospels teach us about the life of Christ. The letters explain Christ. The book of Revelation anticipates Christ coming again in glory. Oh Lord. We thank you for it all. We pray we would trust in him forever. In Jesus' name, amen.